Well, if you notice, we come to our 70th lesson and uh, very possibly our last lesson on church history. We still have, uh, as we're going to begin the early 20th century today in Pentecostalism, um, there's a lot that could be said about the 20th century and the 21st century, but it's possible that we're going to leave it off for now. But either way, we come to the topic of Pentecostalism. And if you notice, Pentecostalism can be divided into three periods, classic or historic Pentecostalism, the charismatic era, and what's commonly called the word of faith movement. Now, in this lesson, we're going to limit our consideration to the first of those, and that is classic or historic Pentecostalism. And let me just say a few things by way of introduction. First of all, the doctrines established in early and classic Pentecostalism are reestablished in the charismatic era and word of faith movement. It's very similar to what we learned some weeks ago when we considered the subject of dispensationalism. If you remember, I said there that the groundwork that was laid in, in their founding fathers basically was reiterated and restated in subsequent leaders. Now, they tweaked things, added things, but nevertheless, there's basic continuity between the founders of dispensationalism and even modern dispensationalism. And the same is true with reference to Pentecostalism. The tragic foundation laid at the end of the 1800s into the beginning of the 1900s is reiterated by all charismatics of all stripes. There's basic continuity between all these eras. And so we're just going to focus on the beginning of them. Keep in mind that there's basic continuity in all the eras of Pentecostalism. Secondly, early on, unfortunately, there was a group of Pentecostals who denied the Trinity, and they're now called Oneness Pentecostals. And this is something that was very early on, um, and continues today. There's a lot of oneness Pentecostals. Probably one of the most famous is T.D. Jakes, who pastors a very large church somewhere, I think, in Texas. But nevertheless, you have oneness Pentecostalism um, continuing throughout all the centuries, and at present, it's a worldwide heresy. So we can be very plain and clear on the front end. Pen uh, oneness Pentecostalism is heretical. And those who intelligently stay in the system prove themselves reprobate. And those who intelligently teach that doctrine, like T.D. Jakes, is the worst kind of heretic. But we have to be honest, the, the founders of Pentecostalism, at least the two that we're going to focus on, the two major ones, they were orthodox on that doctrine. We're going to see Parham. There's two basic uh, founders, uh, Parham and another uh, gentleman by the name of William Seymour, and Charles Parham and William Seymour, admittedly, they were Trinitarian, albeit they denied every other basic doctrine. They were very terrible theologically and practically, as we'll see. But we have to be honest on the front end and be thankful for the fact that the two founders, at least, were Trinitarian in general. Thirdly, Far from what I could tell, <clears throat> from what I could tell, uh, while the founders were 
were orthodox on that doctrine and, um, and went astray on many other doctrines, their practical piety was notorious. Uh, for all of their claims at holiness and sanctification, they were the least holy and least sanctified peoples on the planet. And uh, we're not going to talk a whole lot about that. Uh, you can look into that on your own. Uh, this is especially true of their father, the, the founder of the movement, Charles Parham. He was accused of all types of scandalous things, including sodomy. Uh, but nevertheless, he wasn't a Christian, obviously, not only because of his bad doctrine, but because of his bad practice. But he is the founder of Pentecostalism. Everybody admits that. It's just like Darby. Darby was the founder of dispensationalism. Nobody can refute that. Parham is the founder of Pentecostalism. Nobody even tries to refute it. And again, he's uh, scandal. he was scandalous in his practices. And William Seymour was no better. We're going to see that in a minute. He was his disciple and basically the second father of the movement. If you go back to dispensationalism again, you have Darby, then Schofield. Well, here you have Parham and William Seymour. Furthermore, Pentecostalism became very broad early on, and so it did become rather diverse. And we want to make clear, uh, make that point clear. Uh, so there's going to be some of the branches of Pentecostalism that kind of branches out from the fathers who are more orthodox and are more sincere than others. Um, and uh, maybe, well, we'll just leave it at that and, and, and say, and thusly say, that there are Christians today who are Pentecostal. So now that we're dealing with... We're not dealing with a religious cult in the same way as the three previous. Albeit, it's my humble opinion, that the fathers or the founders of, of Pentecostalism were not as bad, but almost as bad as the founders of those religious cults. The, 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 the founders of Pentecostalism did found religious cults. They were cultish in every Definition of that. Uh, if you go back to the four marks of a cult, they're all there. Um, but they were more orthodox, generally speaking, and thus I think they attracted more Christians, true Christians, than the, uh, strictly speaking, religious cults. And then down the road, some of these groups distanced themselves from the heretical foundations and became more orthodox. And so, again, as you know, there are true Christians who are Pentecostal. But brethren, just because there's true Christians who are Pentecostal, that doesn't negate the fact that it's a horrid system and, and, and contrary to the scriptures. And so because we're dealing with church history, I'm not going to try to refute their beliefs as I, try, I, I haven't felt obligated to refute the other groups that we've been considering. And I'm just going to look at their major players, their major people, and, and distinct doctrines, and just leave it at that. Again, it's, like, it's similar to what I said about dispensationalism. To cover their doctrines really is the best way to refute it. Just set out what this is what they believed, and you know your Bible enough to know that this doesn't line up with the Bible. 
I think I have one last thing or so I want to say. Let me check. Let me just reiterate this. That it's impossible and unfair to paint all Pentecostals with the same brush. That's true. But nevertheless, we're not here dealing so much with personalities or people as positions and doctrines. Uh, some of you might know MacArthur had a uh, conference a few years ago back in California in his church called uh, Charismatic Chaos or Strange Fire. I, I think Charismatic Chaos was a, a name of a book he wrote earlier, but, um, but uh, Strange Fire Conference, and I would encourage you to go back and revisit some of that. Um, there, he wrote a book, too, called Strange Fire, and at the end of that book, he actually, I, I forgot all about it until this morning, so when I was kind of breezing through it, he covers all, all the stuff we're covering in terms of the history of it, and he gives documentation concerning the deviant behavior of both Parham and Seymour. And then uh, also, at the end of that book, the last chapter, it's a, a lengthy chapter, and it's called something like an open letter to my conservative and reformed charismatic friends. And there he's addressing what's commonly now called reformed or Calvinistic uh, charismatic theology. Um, that another term for that is continuationism, the continuation of all the revelatory gifts, apostle, prophet, miracle working and the likes. And there's a lot of people today that want to believe those doctrines and still be reformed. That's just impossible. It's like being a dog and a cat at the same time. It's like being a man and a woman at the same time. You can't be that. You're a man or you're a woman. You're a cat, you're a dog. You're a continuationist or you're a cessationist. There's no middle ground. And so it's an actually excellent chapter and uh, um, article where he addresses the problems of trying to be Calvinistic and still retain these doctrines. It's actually a very nicely written, polite, but straightforward uh, argument or apology against supposed Calvinists uh, who are charismatics. Now, let me just say one last thing. I could almost, it's almost impossible for me to state the the problems of this movement. You do understand how vast Pentecostalism has become. And somebody needs to speak out and, and, and do so politely but straightforwardly. And that's why I do appreciate MacArthur, albeit MacArthur has these men speak all the time at his conferences, which I think is inconsistent. But nevertheless, <clears throat> at least he's speaking out and he should because it's not a small issue. It's a divisive issue. We need to separate over it. If you believe that the, the offices of apostle and prophet and the gifts of prophecy and miracle working and tongue speaking continue today, I can't fellowship with you, period. I don't want to buy your books, listen to your sermons. I don't care how orthodox you are otherwise. Straight, just straightforward. That's what we need to do. We need to put pressure on our brethren, and I believe these are brothers, to, to get out of that movement and to openly repudiate it and stop playing with it because you're leaving a door open and you're sucking in a whole lot of people to this nonsense and it needs to stop. We have many churches all over the world, Reformed Baptist churches, and our 
brethren in different countries constantly tell us the number one problem they face is the charismatic movement. What's the biggest problem you have in Africa? The charismatics. Because they're coming in and they're teaching these lies that God wants everybody healthy and wealthy. And they're getting tens of thousands of people to their to their conferences. And they're starting hundreds and hundreds and thousands of churches in all these places. Teaching deviant doctrines. And uh, the majority of them are, are, are not clear minded on the majors. The majority of them, let's face it, are not clear minded on the majors. These aren't like um, John Piper type churches. He, he calls himself a, a Calvinist. He's one of those Calvinists who's a charismatic, which, again, isn't a possibility. But it would be better to have that. But see, that leaves the door open to the rest because Piper and them, they rarely ever refute the, the extremes. They, they, they're always open to them. Yeah, you never know. Maybe God is working among them. Yeah, I mean, whatever. They, they always leave the door open. Close the door. Close the door and lock it. That's what they should do. Because we're exporting this nonsense to all these countries and we're making more confusion. We're creating more confusion than converts. But Pastor Mike, at least they're sending churches. Are we supposed to be happy about that? That they're planting churches in these places? I'm not happy with it. And quite frankly, I would, would to God that, I, that all true Christians in these churches would leave them. Period. Leave them. Come out from them, says God. That's what you should do. You should abandon any church that teaches that the revelatory gifts continue. Period. Full stop. I don't care how orthodox they are. I don't care how great the preacher is. I don't care how wonderful the music is. Get out. And close your door on the way out and lock it. And never go back. Now, if you think I'm overstating it, brother, then you got an issue. <clears throat> then you have an issue. Then you open your eyes. Get your head out the sand. Open your eyes. And find out what's going on around you. It's a mess. And here's the origin of it. Right here. Now, I want to talk first about its roots. Pentecostalism has three major roots. Wesley, Finney, and the holiest movement. Well, right there you can say, or you can see, it didn't start well. From Methodism through American revivalism and the personal work of Finney, the line is a straight one that leads through the holiness movement directly into Pentecostalism. While differing on some things, these roots are united in their belief in moral perfection, sometimes called perfect sanctification or complete sanctification, as the result of a second blessing of the Spirit. This is, this is kind of at the root of it. Uh, Two-tierism with reference to Christians, the have and the have-nots. There's two types of Christians. There's the one that's saved, and then there's the other one that's sanctified. This is classic Pentecostalism. Wesley, the determined founder of Methodism, was also the spiritual and intellectual father of the modern holiness of Pentecostal movements, which arose from Methodism in the last century. The theological foundations of modern Pentecostalism can be traced primarily to Methodism and the thinking of Wesley. I, I put Sam Storms in there. I, I probably wouldn't do it if I was to do it again, because he is one of those supposed charismatic Calvinists. Uh, and I like him, don't get me wrong. But again, I don't, I don't recant anything I said. And I shouldn't have even used him as a as a <clears throat> as a point of reference. 
But just keep in mind that he is sympathetic to the Pentecostals because he is one, albeit he's a Calvinist. It's in Methodism we find the actual historical links and developments that will climax in Pentecostalism. This is this again and again the, 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 the consensus. Wesley believed through a second work of God's spirit, Christians could be perfectly or completely sanctified. This view became widespread during the holiness movement, which became the soil from which classic Pentecostalism was born. Finney took Wesley's teaching further, stressing the two-tier nature of sanctification. The first was received by all Christians at conversion, whereas the second only by those who receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. By 1740, Wesley's ideas on theology were well cast in the permanent mold that would shape the Methodist movement. Briefly stated, they involved two separate phases of experience for the believer. The first, conversion or justification. The second, Christian perfection or sanctification. In the first experience, the penitent was forgiven for actual sins of commission, becoming a Christian, but retaining a residue of sin within. This remaining inbred sin was the result of Adam's fall and had to be dealt with by a second blessing, properly so called. This experience purified the believer of inward sin and gave a person perfect love. Now keep in mind, this is Wesley, because this is going to be Parham identically. He totally took his doctrines and just added to them uh, toward God and humanity. The perfection Wesley taught was a perfection of motives and desires. Total sinless perfection would come only after death. In the meantime, the sanctified soul, through careful self-examination, godly discipline, and regular devotions, uh, devotion and avoidance of worldly pleasures could live a life of victory over sin. This perfection, Wesley taught, could be attained instantly as a second work of grace, although it was usually preceded and followed by gradual growth in grace. Here's the, here's a, here it is in a nutshell. Wesley believed in a two-tier Christianity. There's the regulars and then the specials. The first one's justified and is a Christian as long as they keep themselves Christian because he believed that you could become unchristian having been Christian. And then there's something else that the precious few get. This sounds a lot like the three heretical sects that we saw in the previous three weeks. There's always a remnant, and guess what? That just happens to be us. Now, I've given you a summary of Wesley. Now, here comes Finney himself. Just keep in mind the dates, brother. Remember, Wesley is 1700s, Finney is 1800s. And then the third root is the holiness movement. That's the second half of the 1800s. From these three terrible roots comes the Pentecostal movement. All right. Now, this is Finney. There is a great distance between the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit in the soul. The disciples were Christians before the day of Pentecost and as such, had a measure of the Holy Spirit. They must have had the peace of sins forgiven and of a justified state, <clears throat> but they did not have the endowment of power necessary to the accomplishment of the work assigned them. They had the peace which Christ had given them, but not the power which he promised. This may be true of all Christians, and right here is, I think, the great mistake of the church and the ministry. They rest in conversion and do not seek until they obtain this endowment or endowment of power from on high. Hence, so many professors have no power with either God or man. They prevail with neither. The apostles and brethren on the day of Pentecost received it. What did they receive? What power did they exercise after the event? 
They receive the powerful baptism of the Holy Ghost, a vast increase of divine illumination. This baptism imparted a great diversity of gifts that were used for the accomplishment of their work. It manifestly included the following things. The power of a holy life, the power of a self-sacrificing life, the power of a cross-bearing life, the power of great meekness, which this baptism enabled from everywhere to exhibit. None of these men were meek, by the way. Finney was the least meek person on the planet. If, if, if Moses was said to be the most meek man in the Old Testament, Finney was the least meek man in the history of the church. But yet he had the Holy Ghost in a way we don't and all these supposed second blessings. I won't even read it. You can go on and read it. Basically, he says, until you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're never going to do anything worthwhile. So again, two-tierism. Christians, you just get Jesus when you become a Christian. The rest of us, we get the Holy Ghost. Brethren, this is part and parcel with Pentecostalism. Early or present. Early or present. I really think some of us may not be as clear as to the severity of this horrid doctrine. Tony? Let me just say something about Sam Storms because he's probably the best of the charismatics. Because he, he has written a very excellent book on all millennial eschatology that I, I think is an excellent book. Here's the problem with him. The, he's written more books on the gifts of the spirit, how to receive the baptism of the spirit and how to expect whole, um, uh, healing than any other topic. Those are his topics. So he said, but he's written a good book about Calvinism. He's written a good book about um, millennialism. He's written a good book about church history. Well, he has. But he's written twice or three times as much on these doctrines than any other. Why is that? Ask him. You can email him. Next paragraph. Thus, Pentecostalism grew out of the Methodist camp meetings. Now we're moving from Wesley to Finney to the camp meetings that came out of the Second Awakening. They commonly call this the Third Great Awakening. These meetings were intended to recover and promote the doctrine of entire sanctification. In August 66, Jay Wood remarked to a friend that the doctrine of sanctification was suffering and eclipse within Methodism. Opposition to the doctrine and distinctive experience of entire sanctification was often encountered even in some Methodist camp meetings. In an offhand remark, Wood said he believed that, quote, some camp meetings for the special work of holiness ought to be held. Would encourage his friend, William B. Osborne, of the New Jersey Methodist Conference, to travel to New York City in April of 1867 to lay the question before John Inskip, pastor of the Green Street Methodist Church. With great feeling, Osborne told Inskip, I feel God would have us hold a holiness camp meeting. Osborne's enthusiasm was so contagious that Inskip immediately approved of the idea. Inskip and Osborne immediately set the wheels moving for the first camp meeting. A call signed by 13 Methodist ministers of New York 
was issued for a larger meeting to be held in Philadelphia on June 13, 1867. Again, this is the third great awakening, quote unquote, from which most directly and immediately Pentecostalism is derived. The men present voted to hold a camp meeting in Vineland, New, York, New Jersey, July 17 through 26, 1867, appointing committees to prepare accommodations and publicity for the event, naming themselves the National Camp Meeting Association for the promotion of Christian, I have to put in brackets, holiness. The group issued a call written by a well-known Methodist pastor, the Reverend Alton Cookman, addressed to all, irrespective of denominational times. Now, you know, this is where Pentecostalism comes with the no makeup, no this, no that. That's holiness. Especially welcome were those who feel themselves comparatively isolated in their profession of holiness. It was hoped that all would, quote, realize together a Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Ghost and return with a view to increased usefulness in the churches of which were members. With the opening of the Vineland, New Jersey camp meeting on July 17, 1867, the modern holiness crusade began. This may properly be considered the beginning of the modern holiness movement in the United States. Those who attended felt unanimously that the meeting was destined to, quote, exert an influence over all Christendom, as well as to intimate a new era in Methodism. Little did these men realize that this meeting would eventually result in the formation of over a hundred denominations around the world and indirectly bring to birth a third force in Christendom, the Pentecostal movement. In the years following 67, the national camp meetings were held all over the place, you can see there. And uh, perhaps the most notable in the middle of that paragraph, national camp meeting was held in Round Lake, 1874, where seven bishops from the Northern and Southern Methodist churches attended along with 20,000 other worshipers the high point was reached when President U.S. Grant arrived for one day of services. He was a politician. And you have 20,000 people. Of course, he's going to show his face. But the tragedy is, is that he showed his face at a movement, uh, at a supposed revival that would issue forth into one of the biggest problems the church would face in the 20th and 21st centuries. And that's Pentecostalism. Now, who are the major players? Well, there's more than two, but there's fundamentally these two at the, the top of the list, or they make the short list, however you put that. And then there's others that follow. So we're just going to limit ourselves to these two. Charles Parham. Parham is widely acknowledged as the primary founder of Pentecostalism. Larry Martin, a devout Pentecostal, after stating Charles Fox Parham, is indisputably the founder of the modern Pentecostal charismatic movements, then admitted he was a very flawed, even disgraced minister. Brethren, why would you want to be a part of some system that has such horrid, rotten roots? A man accused of such thievery and sexual deviancy and was evidently doctrinally off the mark. But he was a racist to the core. He that he joined the Ku Klux Klan before he died. I mean, that's common knowledge. He believed that the Anglo-Saxons are the true Hebrews and the supreme and primary race. 
And this is why he didn't care for the next man as for C, William Seymour, because he was black. He was a racist, liar, thieving, sexually deviant heretic. He espoused, this is still Martin, he espoused radical and unorthodox doctrines and had a particularly peculiar personality. That's a polite way of putting that. If this was not enough to disqualify him as a spiritual father, Parham was repeatedly accused of the worst moral transgressions in a movement that placed hyperemphasis on sanctification for personal holiness. Thus, Parham regularly referred to himself as the founder of the apostolic faith. That was the original name of the movement. Even the subtitle of his wife's bio of her husband was founder of the apostolic faith movement. The life and sermons of Charles Parham, founder of the apostolic faith movement. There's no doubt that Parham and his wife identified him as the father of Pentecostalism. It was he who coined the distinctive name that was widely used by early Pentecostals, the apostolic faith. It was he who organized the first large gatherings of Pentecostals. It was he who first issued ministerial credentials. It was he who built the first church. It was he who led the first Bible school and formulated the first Pentecostal curriculum. Parham opened a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas in October 15, 1900, known as the College of Bethel. Parham charged neither tuition nor room and board. The school was for those who were willing to forsake all and trust God for everything. After study of the book of Acts, the students entered a time of prayer and waited on God. On January 1, 1901, Angus Nevada Osman, a 30-year-old student, received the baptism of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking in a language she did not know. The following days, Parham and several other students received the experience and spoke with tongues. Now, you have to keep in mind that Parham, to the, to the end, maintained that tongue speaking was speaking known languages previously unknown to the speaker. Now, that is biblical tongue speaking. The whole jibber-jabber thing would come later. What happened was he sent missionaries to China, India, and, and Japan with the understanding that when they got there, they would be given the ability to speak in those native tongues. Well, when they got there and couldn't speak in it, that eventually led them to alter their understanding of tongues and turn it into an unrecognizable angelic prayer language. I'll skip over um, Parham there, uh, the, the last little I have about him. It talks about his revival there in Kansas quote-unquote revival. It was such a revival that accounts are numerous. There was one occasion that there was such bright lights coming from the meeting house that the firemen came to put out the fire, but they realized it was just the Shekinah glory. But that's not, I mean, that's what we get today. Brother, I'm telling you, there is a direct connection between all that's going on today that went on in the beginning. Again, there's continuity between the roots and the roof of the edifice of Pentecostalism. Dan? I don't know if you came in contact with this in your research and this or 
founding members or front runners or clansmen, at what point did then the, the predominant black church growth begin to be infiltrated by this? Because you, you and me both know that's just so overwhelmingly prominent. Yeah, well, they, they split early on. Yeah, because the, the next, uh, uh, there's, there's Charles Parham, and then there's the guy we're going to come to now, William Seymour, and he was black. And he wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom, but he had to sit out in the hallway. But Parham was so gracious, he left the door open a little bit so that he could hear. So the other guy have been influential into the black? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, he's still the father. Everybody acknowledges that. But there's a, a rift between the two that, that was pretty pronounced. Yeah, I, I don't talk about that, but let me just quickly put it like this. William Seymour was one of the disciples of Parham. He wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with the other whites, but he had to sit in the hallway. But he eventually takes the doctrine to California. Uh, and that's where they have in, in, in these revivals, as we'll see here in a minute, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and he was playing up his father in the faith, Mr. Parham. He was so excited about him coming to visit. And he had a he had a mixed congregation. Uh, William did. He had black and whites. And when Parham came and saw that there were black and whites sitting together and falling on top of each other as they're slain in the spirit. See, brethren, this is happening already in the first uh, decade of the 20th century. The whole slain in the spirit. It's all it's all up and going. He was appalled. And he said that they needed to be segregated. And uh, they basically chased him out of town, and that was the rift that was never recovered. But nevertheless, um, Seymour always maintained to the end that his father in the faith was Parham. I don't know if they ever reconciled towards the end as possible. All right, let's quickly just go through Seymour's life. In 1905, Parham moved his ministry to Houston, Texas, where he started the Bible training school. Seymour, a black holiness evangelist, became one of his students. Because he was a strict segregationist, Seymour wasn't allowed in the room. Parham, nevertheless, accommodated him by leaving the door open. After seven weeks in the classes, Seymour received a call to pastor in Los Angeles. On April 14, 1906, Seymour relocates his group of followers to a small building in Azusa Street. Now, you've heard of the uh, Azusa Revival. This is... It's sometimes people will ascribe this as or describe this as the beginning of Pentecostalism, but you have to take it back earlier to Kansas and Houston with Parham. Hundreds of people go there. They all get sanctified and baptized by the Spirit and speak with tongues, that is, in languages, real languages, previously unknown. Because at this point, they're still understanding that tongue speaking is known languages. So Seymour really kind of just launches what Parham established, and that is the Pentecostal movement. Now, what are the beliefs of the Pentecostals, particularly with regards to these two men? Well, three themes rose to prominence in the newly budding Pentecostal movement. Spirit baptism, perfect sanctification, and the return of revelatory gifts, tongue speaking, prophecy, etc. All right, so you have, let's put it like this. For them, there's three works of grace. There's 
salvation. That's conversion. That includes justification. There's sanctification. Not everybody's sanctified. That's justified. This is something that you have to seek separate from the first. So you have to become sanctified, and that is when the Holy Spirit kills the old man. That happens in sanctification, not in conversion. So, so you have conversion, sanctification. Now, the highest, the highest tier of God's work is spirit baptism. And what's unique about the Pentecostals is from Finney and them, they add the necessity of speaking in tongues as evidence of baptism in the spirit. So that's their, their kind of their claim to fame. So you, there's three there's three kinds of Christians, really. It's not a two tier, it's a three tier Christianity. The regular Christian, he doesn't have power to do anything. The sanctified one, he or she has power. But man, that's nothing in comparison to the baptized one. <sighs> Yeah. When you're speaking in tongues, was there someone interpreting at that time? No, because they never had actually got the gift of tongue speaking. Uh, it was. They really thought they were speaking foreign languages. They would get to foreign countries, all proud that they could speak to the residents who were completely blown away that people couldn't understand you because they were absolutely sure they were speaking Chinese. Yeah, they even uh, at one point uh, justified it. What we're speaking is like Chinese or, or Japanese, but we're speaking it in accordance to the old Hebrew without the vowels. And so that's why that's why the Chinese aren't catching. it. Yeah, we have to put the vowels back in. Now, you can read through some of the books I have listed there. The titles of the books, uh, this is, again, that third wave or the third um, revival, the third great awakening, they call it, that, that, that era where holiness was revived. Notice the titles of the books, uh, The Promise of the Father, Guide to Holiness, The Tongue of Fire, The Baptism of the Holy Ghost, Scripture, Doctrine of Christian Perfection, Christian Perfectionism, The Gift of the Holy Ghost, the believer's privilege, the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of healing, the Holy Spirit or the power from on higher, that's not a typo, and the gospel of healing and the gift of the Holy Ghost. It, the, you can see a reoccurring theme or themes, can't you? And those are the three things you want to come to. Notice spirit baptism. Though not the first to teach a second work of the spirit, Pentecostals were the first to teach a baptism of the spirit evidence of speaking in tongues. That's the uniqueness. At first, they believed these tongues were known languages, but eventually they concluded they were unknown prayer languages. Many people before Parham had taught, preached, and even experienced a baptism in the Holy Spirit, but Parham's teaching was unique. From a study of Acts, he concluded that a biblical baptism was always evidenced by speaking in an unknown language. Those who wait on God will receive the baptism of the Spirit, which will be evidenced in speaking in previously unknown languages. Knowing all languages, the Holy Ghost could as easily speak through uh, uh, us one language as another where our tongues and vocal cords fully surrendered to his domination. That's what Parham himself said. 
For Parham speaking in a foreign language is proof you've been commissioned by God and thus speak for him. In the close of the age, God purposes to send forth men and women preaching in languages they know not a word of, which when interpreted, the hearers will know is truly a message from God spoken through lips of clay, but by the power of the Holy Ghost. This is truly the acme, the pinnacle of inspiration, prayed for every Sabbath, desired by all true ministers of God. Parham maintained this baptism was a new thing. Men before him, such as Wesley, enjoyed a mighty anointing and spoke like holy, uh, the holy men of old as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But the power of this Pentecostal baptism of the Holy Spirit is a different thing entirely. How many times do we hear in Pentecostal circles today? What's the reoccurring um, claim? God is doing a new thing. He's always doing a new thing. That was last week. That was last year. That was last decade. Why can't we just pray for God to do an old thing? Yeah, it's kind of mundane and boring. But prior to receiving this baptism, you must first be sanctified. These two, spirit baptism and sanctification, are related yet distinct blessings. There is a great difference between a sanctified person and one baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. A sanctified person is cleansed and filled with divine love. But the one that is baptized with the Holy Ghost has the power of God on his soul and has power with God in men over whom all the kingdoms of Satan and over all his emissaries. When we're sanctified through the truth, then we are one in Christ and we can get into one accord for the gift or power of the Holy Ghost and God will come in like a rushing, mighty wind and fill every heart with the power of the Holy Spirit. Parham found biblical grounds in the book of Acts to unite Holy Spirit baptism with speaking in tongues. He was the first to claim a biblical reason to marry the two experiences. As Parham saw it, everyone in the early church received spirit baptism and all who did spoke in tongues. Thus, tongues speaking was the evidence, biblical evidence of spirit baptism. The connection sets Parham's movement apart from all previous awakenings. This theological difference is what makes the Topeka experience, that is Parham in the early 1901, more than just one of several stepping stones in the origins of the movement. This was the genesis of the movement, and this is what makes Parham the father of Pentecostalism. Perfect sanctification. For Parham, not all Christians are sanctified. Sanctification is the act of God that's to be sought by Christians. Thus, only the sanctified are the bride who are, who are distinct from the church. They only will rule with Christ during the millennium. Adam's bride was a rib taken out of his side. The second Adam's Christ bride will be a small company, 144,000 taken out of his body, the church. The bride is the distinct company from the church. Christ doesn't marry his own body, as many teachers would have you believe, i.e. for the last 2,000 years. Again, I don't mention this, but Parham was like the others before him, a date setter. He had predicted the dates that Jesus would come back and was disappointed as the previous. As one of the principal tenets of the apostolic faith, Parham believed in a complete sanctification as a second and last work of God's grace, the first work being salvation. According to the evangelist, conversion gave you prohibitionary, 
uh, membership in the church of the living God. But sanctification made you a full member. Have you heard? You have heard Pentecostals speak like this. Are you saved? Yes. But are you sanctified? And so sometimes they identify themselves as I'm a Christian. Saved and sanctified. Well, if you're a Christian, you're saved. and If you're saved, you're sanctified. But see, they make a distinction. In sanctification, which is an act, not process, God removes our inbred desire and longing for sin. Again, it's the killing of the old man. That takes place in sanctification, a distinct and subsequent act of the spirit from conversion. Sanctification operates not upon the sins that you've committed, but upon the sin that was born in you. It deals with the inbred sin. Justification deals with sins committed, but sanctification deals with the inbred sin that causes you to sin, that leads you to sin, and which conversion does not take out. These things are in the flesh, man. They are uh, the inherited appetites, passions, and lusts that rise in the flesh and are of the flesh. But when God sanctifies you, he will take all of that out. Oh, the sweetness that God will give us, the humility and love. I want to tell you that God will help you if you let him. He will take out, not merely suppress, all the inbred sin, which was your natural inheritance. Parham hated the doctrine of creation. He was an avid evolutionist. He mocked it. He hated the doctrine of hell as... Again, most false teachers do. Had a horrid view of Jesus and his atoning work. Listen to Seymour. Sanctification makes us one with the Lord Jesus. It makes us holy as Jesus is. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It is his will for every soul to be saved from all sin, Actual, that happens when you're saved, and original, when you're sanctified. We get our actual sins cleansed away through the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross, but our original sin we get cleansed on the cross. It must be a real death to the old man. So it takes the death of the old man in order that Christ might be sanctified in us. It is not sufficient to have the old man stunned or knocked down, for he will rise again. God is calling his people to true holiness in these days. We thank God for the blessed light that he's giving us. He says in 2 Timothy 2, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. He means for us to be purged from uncleanness and all kinds of sin. Then we shall be a vessel unto, uh, a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Sanctification makes us holy and destroys the breed of sin, the love of sin and carnality. It makes us pure and whiter than snow. Any man that saved and sanctified can feel the fire burning in his heart when he calls on the name of Jesus. Oh, may God help men and women everywhere to lead a holy life free from sin. For the Holy Spirit seeks to lead you out of sin into the marvelous light of the Son of God. Now, probably just as important to them uh, alongside, let me put it this way, of equal importance uh, with baptism of the Holy Spirit and sanctification would be physical healing. 
perhaps even more characteristic of Pentecostalism than the doctrine of baptism of the Spirit is the celebration of miracles of divine healing as part of God's salvation and as evidence of the presence of divine power in the church. Parham believed that divine healing was available to all believers all the time. He declared that the healing of the sick is as much part of the gospel as telling of heaven. He further taught that a fully sanctified person would be sanctified in both spirit and body and would have no taint of disease. So they believe that even sanctification has two tiers to it. So you become a Christian and then you get sanctified eventually, potentially. And that's when the old man is killed and now you have power to live holy. But the more you become sanctified, so they don't deny that there's a progression. of it. This holiness not only is in the soul, but the body. Thus, evidence of physical sickness is evidence of the lack of sanctification or holiness. Job, let me tell you what they do with Job. As you know, modern Pentecostals, they pervert the whole story of Job. It's an embarrassment to them. And... This is how they said, and they still say today, Job was sick because he was a secret sinner. And, and this is what they'll say. In part, he married that horrid woman. Probably because she was very attractive. So they're imputing this on Job's character based on what? That she was a horrid person, that's evident. But that she was an exceptionally handsome person that tempted him to sin against God by marrying an unconverted woman. That's ridiculous. That's just absolutely fictional. Job is said to be a holy man. But he suffered sickness. And so they have to somehow correct that and say, well, it comes from Satan. You see that Satan is in charge of sicknesses. And Job was sick due to the fact that he was a secret sinner. It just runs contrary to the whole book of Job and to the whole Bible. Let me uh, leave you with Parham. The healing of the sick is as much a part of the gospel as telling them of heaven. Were this gospel, now stop and think about how they like the phrase full gospel. See, the Charismatics and the Pentecostals, they have the full gospel. We just have a truncated version of it. What they, what the founders, Parham and Seymour would say, we had a perversion of it. That's what they would say. We have a perversion. of it. They have the real deal, the full gospel, the real gospel, the true gospel. Were this gospel fully preached today, the multitudes would hang upon the word of God while the heathen would flow into the hill of the Lord. This is the gospel Jesus said must be preached to all nations as a witness before the end should come. You, dear friends, who are neglecting to teach, preach, and give of your substance to the spread of this gospel, they were big into tithing. They actually believed tithing. They actually taught that you have to give not only a tenth of all your income to the church, but you also have to give at the end of the year a tenth of, or not, a tenth of, 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 your, of your money monthly, 
But at the end of the year, all that you made in excess, instead of saving it or investing it, you have to give it to the church. Because saving the money is what? Storing up treasure on earth. Give it to the church and let us store it up. Money, hungry, wretched men. There's nothing new under the sun. You, dear friends, who are neglecting to teach, preach, and give of the substance, the gospel of this, spread of this gospel, attended with signs, wonders, mighty deeds, divers, miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Ghost, are in danger of standing in utter condemnation before the judgment bar of God. Why? Because they preach, if you don't preach that gospel, if you preach our gospel, according to Parham, you preach another gospel. Connor in closing. At worst, it's demonic. Middle ground is deceptive. At best, it's just a bunch of deceived, poor talk Christians. Our Father, we do thank you for the truth. And our hearts are humbled again as we contemplate the vastness of this error. Hundreds of millions of professing Christians caught up in these, in this web of lies. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us, as we've prayed many times, on one hand, to be humbled at the grace that's differed us and made us to be distinguished. And then secondly, Father, help us to humbly yet forthrightly and thusly lovingly tell the truth to our neighbors. And this includes, Father, all of these people who are either ill-taught, deceived, 
or deceiving a multitude. Be merciful to us, we pray, Father. As we now transition to our time of worship, we pray that you would come by your spirit and fill our hearts with grace, that we might worship you according to your word in spirit and truth. Amen.